0: Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. So turn to Mark chapter 3. Let me say one thing here about what we're coming to from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. There's actually two stories here. One of the things that Mark does is he inserts a story into a story. So he starts a story and doesn't complete it. He puts another story in right after it. And then it comes to the conclusion of the first story. So This is, we're actually going to touch upon two stories, but we're not going to complete either one. Because it's going to require more than one sermon to look at these. So let's look at verse 20 and 21. This is the beginning of the first story. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables... How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. We're going to stop right there. So we've got two stories coming together here. So notice, first of all, that Jesus is misunderstood and he's opposed by his family. This is quite amazing. Look at the language that's used here. Then he went home, it's just the word house, he went to a house, doesn't tell us what house it was, but it's probably Peter's house up in Capernaum, where previous events happened earlier in Mark's account. But we're not sure, it's not important, he went to a house. And as usual, a crowd gathered, they found out he was there, and so again, a crowd comes in, and they're in the house, and it's so busy, it's so full, that they can't even eat. So just try to picture this setting. And when his family heard it, now the word for family, it's an interesting phrase, it just means those that are of him. It doesn't use the word family, it's not really a word for family. Those that are of him or those that are beside him, is the way the original reads, and it can refer to friends or to relatives. But we know this is the correct understanding, it's family, because at the end of this story that begins in these two verses, the end of the chapter is, and his mother and his brothers were standing outside. So that's the continuation of this first story. So it's his immediate family, not his cousins, not his aunts or uncles. This is his immediate family, apparently even involved Mary. How she got caught up in this, I, it's perplexing a little bit. So when his family heard it, they went out, notice this word, to seize him. This is the words that are used in the Gospels for when they arrested the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in the garden. What seems to be going on here is they're attempting some sort of intervention. They think Jesus has kind of lost it. Uh, they're, They're looking at his zeal, his teaching, as, you know, he's gone off the deep end. And they're trying to intervene... Uh, to protect him, probably to protect him from the Roman uh, authorities, the Jewish authorities. They're concerned about their family reputation. In the first century Palestine, this is a family culture, not so much the individual. They're concerned about the family, a family's reputation. There's a lot of countries like that today that focus on the family. So they're concerned about the reputation of the family as well, so they intrude into this situation. They they want to interrupt it. They're trying to stop Jesus. They want to bring him home. He's taken leave of his senses. He's uh, gone a little wacky. This is how they looked at him. This is an evidence of the unbelief of his brothers, in particular John seven tells us that his brothers did not even believe in him. Jesus had four brothers that are mentioned by name. So Mary, after she had the Lord Jesus Christ, she gave birth to more children. And four are mentioned in particular, and even says sisters, but they're not named. His sisters were not. So how many servants of God have been misunderstood and opposed by their family throughout history? They mistake their zeal for God for fanaticism, being extreme, being... uh, They've got religion, they're a little off now because they show some zeal for God. This must have been a great trial for the Lord Jesus Christ to have his family come and try to uh, step in, intervene, take him away... They should have been his greatest supporters, greatest defenders, greatest advocates, but lo and behold, he's being opposed by his own family. Now notice verse 22, this is my second point. Jesus is attacked now by the Jewish leadership, so this first part of the story stops with his family at the house thinking he's crazy, they're going to try to seize him and take him out of this situation, take him back to Nazareth, whatever their thought was. But now notice what verse 22 says. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, so this is a delegation, an official delegation of the scribes. We've already encountered them in Mark's Gospel. They're the legal experts. This is a segment of the religious leadership of Israel. Many of them were in the belonged to the Sanhedrin. So this is, this is a serious thing now that's happening. This tells us that uh, down in Jerusalem, they caught wind of Jesus growing, following His reputation. And now they send a delegation of scribes to investigate him. Notice what they say. He is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, this is an important uh, thing that I'm going to talk about for a moment with respect to this word, this title that's given to Jesus. This is actually a very shocking accusation He's being accused or judged as being possessed by Beelzebul. Now, who is Beelzebel? What I discovered in looking into this in detail, there is a Old Testament deity that the Philistines worshiped that's mentioned in Second Kings chapter one. And that God's name was Baal. Zebub, Baal, the god Baal, B A A L, and then with an ending that's very similar to this, only it ends with a B, not an L. So it's Baal Zebub. This was the god of Ekron. Ekron was one of the cities of the Philistines. This was a Philistine Philistine deity, ba- Baal. Zabub, Baelzbub. That title for this god meant he was Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Now there was a derisive nickname for that god, which is this word. Beelzebul. bull. There's a nickname. Mocking the Old Testament deity of the Philistines. And this word means Lord of the dung or Lord of filth. Matthew's Gospel tells us in chapter 10 of Matthew that they called Jesus. This is, took place before this. They called him by that name. They called him Beelzebul. Lord of the manure pile. This was a, an unbelievable insult to the Lord Jesus Christ that they called him that. So this is, ad, this is advancing in the narrative, in the story of Jesus, because now they are equating... His power and authority demonstrated in his miraculous exorcisms of casting out demons that he himself is possessed by Beelzebub. So, something the Bible teaches us about false gods and demons. This is taught in both Old and New Testament. That although idols are not real. False gods have no reality to them. There there is a demon or demons that drive those deities and are behind those deities. Let me give you a couple of texts that indicate that. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 17, Moses says, "...they sacrificed to demons that were no gods." To gods they had never known. Notice the connection between they sacrificed to demons, which in reality to idols, to gods that they had not known. But he says they, the sacrifices were made to demons. Uh, the same thing is taught in the book of Psalms, Psalm 106. They served their idols, they sacrificed their children to demons. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says they offered... Food was offered to idols, but in reality it was offered to demons. Paul makes the same connection. So, here, here the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's a leap here, a connection between when they called Jesus that he is the Lord of the manure pile in, in Matthew 10. They gave him the name of a false god that was worshipped in the Old Testament, a deity. But now they are making the connection that this is also the name of a demon, possibly. There's actually two ways to interpret it. It could be an alias for the devil himself. Some take that view, that Beelzebul is another name for Satan. Satan has many names in the Bible. He's called the evil one, he's called the day star... As Lucifer, uh, he's called the, the old serpent, the father of lies. He has many titles, the devil. So Beelzebub could refer to Satan because he, it's defined as the prince of demons. You see that? He is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. So Satan, in a sense, could be said to be the prince or the ruler of demons. But this also might refer to some chief lieutenant of demons in Satan's hierarchy in his kingdom of darkness. We're just not sure. Whatever it is, it was vile. It was a great insult. It was blasphemous. They hurled at him the most horrific thing they could think of, in order to smear him. So this is what the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure from the scribes. He cast out demons by Satan himself. Now, there's an interesting thing that you can draw from this, actually. This charge actually is proof that Jesus had supernatural authority and power, because they didn't say he's a fraud. They didn't accuse him of being a fake. They could see he had some sort of power, but they wanted to redefine the source of that power, that it came from the spiritual darkness of this world. Uh, In Jewish literature, um, it says concerning Yeshua of Nazareth, I forget what the source of this is. I wish I would noted it. It was in one of the books I was looking at. Yeshua of Nazareth was hanged, speaking of his death on the cross, because he practiced sorcery. This is how the Jewish people interpreted the miraculous works of Jesus. So faith... And belief is not automatic when people see or have proof of the miraculous. Sometimes we think, well, if I can just prove to somebody that miracles are real and so on, that they'll become believers. No, not necessarily. Now, some people have become a believer because of proof that is been demonstrated to them. Sometimes that does result in faith, but it's not automatic. Because uh, the heart of man needs more than just convincing evidence, doesn't he? He needs regeneration. He needs a heart change. He needs a heart transplant. And that's a work of the Spirit. So in verses now 23 to 27... The rest of this story, which is, we're not going to complete it because the rest of it will be next week, 28 through 30, where Jesus warns them about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I not want to give a whole sermon to that by itself. But that's where it concludes. So how does Jesus answer this? So his answer is found in the remaining Verses of the text, 23 through 27. Jesus is very logical with them. Notice he doesn't get upset and start throwing flaming arrows back at them after they insult him like this. He, He called them to him and he said to them in parables. So he's going to speak to them in illustration, kind of in a way that's going to be easy to understand. And what he shows, right off, he shows how absurd this is, their charge. That he casts out Satan by Satan. Let me just think about that. So they're basically saying that Satan uh, opposes himself. This, This is completely ridiculous. This is suicidal. Satan is not suicidal. He's not in opposition to himself. He doesn't work in opposition to himself. He doesn't seek uh, his own destruction. Clearly. He's smarter than that. So that right off, this is how he says How can Satan cast out Satan? This is absurd. Now he's going to illustrate this by what follows. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Clearly. If a nation is divided against itself, it cannot stand. That's true of a church. That's true of a family. If there's opposition within and opposing parties going against one another within that framework. This is going to bring about the demise of a nation, a church, a family, whatever it is, a kingdom. Now, Jesus uses a kingdom because Satan is the ruler of a kingdom, isn't he? Where Paul says of Christians that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness... And translated into the kingdom of his dear son. This is Colossians 1.13. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We're all, when we come into this world, we are born into that kingdom, that realm. This is where we are. Until we're delivered from it by God. So Satan has a kingdom. Paul brings it out in there at the end of Ephesians when he talks about spiritual warfare. He says that our, our battle as Christians is not with other people. This is not who we're fighting. This is Ephesians 6:12. We don't wrestle, use his words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, speaking about mankind. This is not where our battle is. but Paul goes on to say, but who who is it that Christians are dealing with? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now some take all those terms that Paul uses as a sort of laying out the levels uh, within Satan's realm. Perhaps it's uh, his hierarchy uh, is being defined there. Or maybe Paul's just putting together a lot of different terms for those within. There's a lot of mystery concerning this. A lot of mystery. When we went through the book of Daniel, remember in Daniel chapter 10, we read about the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece. These were spiritual rulers of darkness over these countries. So we know Satan has some sort of levels of authority within his kingdom. He being the chief ruler. Jesus says three times of Satan in the Gospel of John that he is the ruler of this world. He is the prince of this world. So Lord Jesus Christ begins with the kingdom, but then he moves to a house. Isn't that interesting as well? This further illustrates it, a house. So he goes from a kingdom, a very broad domain, to now he's going to narrow it down to a house, that is a household, a family. A family divided against itself cannot stand. But this also applies to the devil, because he has a family. We heard this morning from John 8, that Satan, is he's the father of lies and he has children. Jesus said to the most religious people in Israel, the Pharisees, the strictest of the strict, religious wise, that they were of their father, the devil. John 8, 44. And John later writes in his first letter, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. So just saying, the thing of humanity is divided like this. There are two groups, children of God and the children of Satan. We're all on this side until by God's grace we move over here. So these are, this is an amazing thing that Jesus is laying out. No one knows better than Satan the truth of the, uh, the phrase that you hear often, divide and conquer. This is how it happens. Divide, divide, and conquer. Divide. Bring opposition. Bring internal strife and division. Opposition from within. And this is how you conquer a country, a church, a family, a nation. And then Jesus applies it. If Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. So a kingdom can't stand, a family can't stand. Satan himself cannot stand if he's in opposition to himself. Now, he changes the analogy in verse 27. Notice this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So on the surface, this is a very good illustration. If somebody's going to want to rob you of... Your possessions, they're, they're going to invade your home, uh, tie you up so that you're helpless, and then take what they want and leave, and you lose your goods. But I can't help but think that he's illustrating something about Satan here and about his own mission. Because this fits perfectly with what Jesus Christ himself came to do. He came into this world on a mission, among other things, to deal with the problem of sin. But he also came to destroy the works of the devil, it tells us. So when you think about why did Jesus Christ come, don't think of just one single answer to that. It's multidimensional. There are several reasons why he came into this world. And here is one right here, and it has to do with Satan. And what he's telling us is that he came into Satan's realm. He came into his kingdom, being incarnated, coming into this world because Satan is the ruler of this world. So the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven, came into this world to invade Satan's territory. And he disabled him, he tied him up, as it were, in order to what? in order to plunder him of his goods. Who, who does Satan have in his possession? He's not talking about... Satan's not interested in jewelry and money and that kind of thing, per se. That's not his goods. His real goods are people that he has in captivity, that are tied up. And Paul uses that language, that they were taken captive of the devil in his letter to Timothy. Timothy. But Jesus came on a rescue mission to set those people free. And he has to tie up Satan, limit his activity in order to plunder him of his goods. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to invade and to ransack Satan's realm. And eventually he will topple his household and his kingdom, though not yet. It's not toppled yet. What Jesus said, he saw Satan fall from heaven in in Luke 10. Remember when he sent the disciples out, and not just uh, the 12, but he sent 70 out on a preaching mission. And he gave them authority over evil spirits, and when they came back, he said, Lord, it's amazing that we were able to cast out demons in your name, and Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven, and one of, as part of his response to that. So Satan's kingdom has been shaken. It's been shaken. It's beginning to fall. It hasn't fallen yet. It's still coming. Now I like, when we went through the book of Acts, remember Paul and his great sermon to Herod Agrippa, one of my favorite Chapters in the book of Acts is when Paul is brought out before Herod Agrippa and that whole scene that Luke describes for us. And he proceeds to tell Herod his testimony. Third time in Acts, Paul gives his testimony, how he encountered Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. But the interesting thing about his testimony in Acts 26 is he gives us more information about what Jesus said to him that's not found in Acts 9 or in Acts 21, where Paul's conversion experience is explained in those chapters. But here he tells us what Jesus said to him. I'm quoting Paul now, his words to King Herod Agrippa. This is Jesus Christ speaking to Paul. I am sending you to open their eyes. This is his ministry to the Gentile world. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, There's a whole sermon in that text of Scripture, Acts 26, 18. So Paul is following in the steps of his Lord by going into Satan's territory, the Gentile world, the Roman Empire. Imagine what he encountered. We're given a taste of it. The, where he went to Lystra and Derby and all those places, Paul was stoned. Encountered persecution. All kinds of things he had to deal with in his mission to the Gentile world. Well, there's much here, isn't there? Now let me wrap this up with a a few thoughts. So, the Lord Jesus Christ was misunderstood by his family. Have you been misunderstood by your family as a professing Christian? If your family is not Uh, Believers, they may misunderstand what you're about. uh, That's something that Jesus himself experienced. He can identify with you. He can sympathize with you on that point. And he's opposed by religious authorities. And the Lord has told us, his followers, that we can expect the same. So we're not to be surprised or to think it's some strange thing when we're tried in these ways, according to Peter. Don't think that it's uh, odd or unexpected. No, Jesus prepared his immediate followers for expect the same treatment. If they treated me this way, they're going to uh, view you the same way. So a Christian also, it comes out, is somebody who's been set free from Satan's power, from Satan's captivity. I wonder if you can identify with that statement yet. Can you identify with that? Does your heart say amen to that? Yes, I've been set free from Satan. I've been set free from the power of the evil one. Do you know that yet in your experience? That's not a popular theme. Not a whole lot of people will talk about that. But, we're either serving the Lord or we're serving Satan. There's just no third master there that the Bible tells us. It's either for God or it's for the Prince of Darkness that we that our lives operate for and in that realm. Where are we? Where where do we stand? But here here's some great th- great truth for us all as we're all going to get hit in this life like i was i was told by a previous pastor that i sat under for a long time he he told me you know some people are hit early in life some in the middle and some at the end he was talking about trials some are hurt hit early they lose their parents when they're kids And they go through the tragedy of the loss of a mom and dad, or both of them, early in life. Some are hit in the middle of life, and some are hit toward the end. But he says everybody gets hit with something. Nobody, this is true of the Christian and non-Christian. So I'm just not talking about this is true of Christians. No, this is true of human experience, because we are children of Adam. We belong to the human family, and we live under the effects of the fall, suffering, sickness, disease, and ultimately death. But here, here's the great thing for the Christian, that there's no suffering or trial that we go through that Jesus Christ has not himself gone through. And so He, we have more than just his empathy. Remember we talked about Empathy. This is, we can show empathy to people when we uh, indicate that we can understand how they feel. And that's the best we can do, because we're not in their shoes, we haven't gone through their particular trial, but we can say, you know, I can understand how that really gives you a lot of pain right now. Jesus has more than empathy. The Bible says he has sympathy. sumpatheo Hebrews 4. For we have not a high priest, a great high priest, that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The word in the original, simpatho, sympathy. That means he has a fellow feeling of your pain and suffering. It says of God in the Old Testament that in all of his people's affliction, he was afflicted. Yahweh was afflicted by the pain and suffering of his people. But now we have Jesus himself who's here among us as one of us and has gone this way himself through this world and has experienced it all. The Lord was given almost like a universal experience of human pain and suffering. And he can sympathize with you. No matter what you've gone through. This is a great thing to know. As we go through life. This is a great encouragement to us. So your friends. Your family. May not be able to enter at all. Into your feelings. And how. Don't look to them. <laughs> go to the Lord himself. He knows what you've gone through. He knows what you're suffering. And just bear your heart to him. And tell him everything and he knows he knows what you're talking about he has gone through that himself so may the lord bless us the beginning of two stories here so we started one started another one not done we got two more sermons we'll complete the middle one next week and then the first story will be completed by the sermon after that Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.